hop, skip, and, and get into uh, kind of the word here a little bit. Um, so a couple weeks ago, I got an email um, regarding the Psalm 23 sermon that I had preached a couple weeks ago. And the email basically said this and asked this very simple but very important question. Why are there death valleys if our shepherd is good? And more importantly, why can't our good shepherd lead us around the valley if it's so terrible, scary, and dark? Just because the world isn't the way it's supposed to be doesn't mean that we have to go through these death valleys if our shepherd is good, does it? Isn't there another way? And if we're honest with each other, I think this is a question that almost every Christian might or every human being on the face of the planet would probably ask, right? Why in that sermon is there a death valley? Why must we go through it? And I answered it kind of in the sermon, but I didn't, you know, I kind of, I didn't glaze it over, but for time's sake, I didn't really go deep into it. But I wanted to make some couple, uh, quick notes about these questions before we kind of dive in, because I think there's a psalm here that would really help us understand and, and put process this question. First thing is, I'm so glad I got this email. By the way, this is an encouragement to you. If you have questions about anything, you can send me an email. I don't, I don't yell at you. I don't think. But um, I love that this question was brought up for two reasons. One, because our Christian lives are full of questions like this. But I grew up in a generation and a time where I was told that my doubts were bad because apparently doubts equal unbelief. But to me, I have to and we have to have questions about God because he's an infinite God doing things in his infinite ways. And me as a finite and sinful and very small human being, I'm never going to be able to comprehend who exactly this amazing God is. And so if he's so incomprehensible, I have to have questions and only digging into the questions will help us to really dig deeper into who he is. So I love that, for, uh, that first fact. And the second one, I love the fact that I got this email because this very question and question like this are all throughout the Psalms that we've been studying all summer long. If you read through the Psalms, and I encourage you to do so, you'll find that questions like this are everywhere. Quick little tid uh, Bible fact for you to know. The Psalms are broken down into five categories. I won't tell you all of them, but one of them is the lament psalm. It's one of crying out pain and hurt and guy, why is this happening, this kind of psalm. And interestingly enough, that psalm is the most popular of all the psalms, a.k.a. it occurs the most out of 150 psalms. So I think it's appropriate that we ask questions like this. And I think it's really appropriate that we ask them and understand them and discuss them together as we'll do today. So back to the question at hand. If God is the good shepherd, then what's up with the death valleys? And even if they are inevitable, isn't there a way to go around them? These questions should be up on the thing, boys. Oh, did I make the mistake of taking out my flash? I did, didn't I? Sah. Hold on one second. This is really terrible, but... These are the things that you can do when you've been at a church for five years and you make countless mistakes all the time. It's in the flash drive. They'll come up. But anyways, let me repeat the question. Um, for those of people, the six loyal people who watch this video on YouTube, they'll be confused. Um, if God is the good shepherd, then what's up with the death valleys? And by the way, if you watch, if you're one of the faithful six, I love you. Um, and even if they're inevitable, isn't there a good, isn't there a way to go around them? If we put the question differently, it can go like this. If God is so good and is so loving and following him is so great, which I claim and I hope all of us do claim that it is, then why does it seem that life is just fraught and just, just all over the place with pain, sorrow, obstacles, rejection, hurt, etc.? And again, for me, it's a great question. Ah, there's my wonderful title slide. 
Why? If God is a good shepherd, why? It's a good question. But I also think that this question comes and is the reflection of a common Christian myth that we've all come to believe that I think is just simply false. And the myth goes like this. If I'm a good Christian, doing all the right things, following all the rules, etc., then God won't let anything bad happen to me and my life will be good. It's amazing how many of us believe that because let me just tell you, sorry, but not sorry, it's wrong. It's not true. Obviously, we want it to be true, but it just simply isn't the case. Life is a messy proposition. It's, called, it's a thing called sin. And life is so messy, and this world is such a messy proposition that one of my professors wrote a book, and the title of the book is Making the Best of a Messy Situation. That's what our Christian life is. It's making the best of a messy situation. Now, at this point, you probably want to leave, get out, and say, oh, I didn't come for this. I didn't come for bad news. I came for good news. Help me feel better about myself, so on and so forth. But stick with me here, because there is great news that's coming. One that will hopefully make sense of the question that we asked about the good shepherd and the, and the death valleys and such. But hopefully another great news about how we deal with the death valleys, the tears and the sorrows, because that's really important too. So let's read our psalm together this morning, which is Psalm 126. Pray real quick and then dive in to this altogether important, I think, and critical question for us and everyone else in the world. Psalm 126, as always, uh, if, if you don't have it, it will be on the screen, only one screen this time, but, uh, and we're reading it in the NS, oh, NASB. Ooh, gosh, I'm so absent-minded. I didn't want to read in this version, but that's the way we read it. I wanted to read in the ESV version because it's better, uh, this one, but we'll just read it and I'll tell you. Um, I'm going to change the word in verse 4 from captivity to fortunes, just, just FYI. When Yahweh brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. And when our mouth, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting, then they said among the nation, Yahweh has done great things for them. Yahweh has done great things for us, and we are glad. So restore us our fortunes, O Yahweh, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray quickly. Lord, would you invite us into this psalm, into this question that for most, if we're being honest, is something that we've struggled with for maybe a long time and one that we still don't maybe have the answer to. Would you speak in this place, comfort us, but more so give us hope and a peace that indeed you are good and that following you is worth it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Fam, I got some good news and some bad news for you. And normally you would be given a choice, which one do you want first? But unfortunately for you, I like to do everything my way. And so I'm not going to give you the choice. And I'm going to give you the bad news first and then the good news later because I think it's worth it. But the bad news. In the Christian life, you should expect lots of of tears. Emphasis on the lots. The psalm we just read tells us very frankly a truth that we all have to digest together. That no matter what, the Christian life of following God is one where you should expect and prepare for lots of tears. And to make it worse, the Christian life, this bad news applies to all of us who are actually doing a great job of following God that if you are doing a great job following God, that you might actually cry more tears than those who are not. 
You probably think that if you're following God, great, that you won't cry as much as those who aren't. I don't think that's true. Now, let's look carefully at this psalm really quickly. The first three verses of this psalm are a reflection. It's a memory of the psalmist counting back and looking back at a time when God rescued the people of Israel out of captivity and restored them back to a glorious uh, time that was so good that it was like a dream. He says, mouths were filled with laughter. There was joyful shouting, and all the other nations were in awe at what Yahweh had done for Israel. It was good times all the time for them. But then in verse 4, suddenly, the tone of the psalm changes drastically. Restore our fortunes, O Yahweh, like streams in the Negev. That's the Hebrew. And the Negev is the desert southern part of Israel where nothing lived. Everything died in the Negev. But in the history of Israel, there's a time when God brought miracles and brought a stream throughout the town, throughout the area of the Negev, and actually things were sprouting. So the person is saying, we used to know a time when miracles like the streams in the Negev happened, but right now we're going through some pretty crappy times. Oh God, can you fix this, please? Restore us to a time when you miraculously had life flowing in a barren place like the Negev that has streams of life. And so now the psalmist is in a place, I think we can clearly tell, that whatever is going on, we're not exactly sure, isn't the dream-like goodness shouting place that he was remembering. But rather is in a cry of restoration and redemption. And you might know what this is like. And the key verse here nails it. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seeds, shall indeed come home again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And by the way, sheaves is a bundle of wheat. That when you know when you're a farmer and you're uh, farming wheat, and then you gather all the wheat together, you put them in a big bundle, and you tie it up, and you bring it back. That's called a sheave. Now, I have more bad news for you. Clearly, something terrible has happened to this psalmist. Life is not good. It is full of tears and it's a cry for help. But the one thing that stuck out to me when I was reading this psalm is that nowhere in the psalm will you find the psalmist and the writer saying, Oh, rescue me, O Yahweh, because this and this happened. Because I did this and this, or this and this is going on and these are the causes. There's nothing bad going on, but for whatever reason... Though this psalmist has no qualms about life, if there isn't enemies attacking, there aren't bad things, he's not repenting for sin or saying, I'm guilty of this, oh God, would you forgive me? Though nothing of that sort is happening, for whatever reason, life is a terror. It's full of tears. It's not good, so much so they dream of a time when it was. Tears, deserts, and death valleys are expected to be part of the Christian life, even during the times when we are following God and trusting as best as we can. This is when you go, this is not what I came here for. I'm leaving. All, our, all of our guests are never coming back. But there's a bigger question that we have to ask. And the question is why, right? God, why does it have to be this way? Like, there's got to be another way, isn't there? This doesn't have to be the case. But I think this is the reason for three reasons. And bear with me here. And again, I did a bad job on the keynote. They should pop up one uh, reason at a time, but it's all going to give there. It's going to give it away, but it's okay. The first reason comes from Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah talks about Jesus, the lamb and the man of sorrows. And the description that he gives of Jesus is not good. There's not much to look at. He's not really all that cool. And actually lots of terrible things happen to him. And of course, it's a prophecy, but as you know, lots of terrible things happen to Jesus. Jesus isn't described nicely, and his life isn't all that flowery or great. 
His life, isn't any, his life isn't one that we would envy. I hope you know, right? If you track Jesus' life, it's not one that you envy, right? He was born to a poor carpenter, a virgin young lady. He grew up to be a rabbi from a small town that garnered very little respect or attention. He was schemed against his entire life, though he went around doing good to poor people and the people who didn't know him. And in the end, the people who schemed against him, the very people he came to save, ended up killing him and ruining him. Come on in. You're good. Interestingly for Jesus, eyes on me. I'm the most important person in the room. Just kidding. Interestingly for Jesus, right, the perfect, the only perfect human being who ever walked the earth. Like, wrap your minds around this. The only perfect human being who ever walked the earth somehow experience maybe the most amount of tears, sorrow, grief, pain, and death valleys. And make no mistake, Jesus followed God perfectly, which means then we should think that he should have no death valleys in his life. But the fact that he's called a man of sorrows, man of sorrows acquainted with grief shows us that the world is a dark place and there's no escaping it, not in this world. I think the fact that Jesus is a man of sorrow shows us how serious, how dangerous, how dark this world and sin truly is. Because the only way to defeat it, now make no mistake, the only way to defeat sin was to die. For him to die and to sacrifice and shed the blood. Sorry, not sorry, but as you know. The more we follow Jesus, the more we become like him and can expect to feel and do and understand and receive things like him. And therefore, you should expect lots of death valleys. But as the flaming why is going off in your mind, think to yourself. Regardless of whether you know or don't know Christ, no matter who you are as a human being living in this world, there will be death valleys. It's why Jesus did what he did. It's why he sacrificed himself. It's why he died and came and lived a perfect life. All those things. But with Jesus, he leads you through them. Without him, you ain't got nothing. You're on your own. Second reason why I think this is supposed to be. Ezekiel 36. It says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Plain and simple, this prophet is saying that when you know God and you have the gospel, your life changes, your heart changes. Be honest. I know you don't like to, but be honest. Your hearts can be quite cold, quite dark, quite mean. You can be, as many have said, heartless. But with God, our cold, dark, and mean heart becomes more of a heart, a softer, more vulnerable, more honest, and more relatable, more kind heart, doesn't it? This is what you who go on missions feel all the time. In the beginning, you feel a certain way, and as the week goes, for whatever reason, your heart becomes more tender towards around you. You feel what people are feeling around you in the beginning. You start to feel others' pain and sorrow with your heart, and your heart grieves for them. See, without the gospel, it's very different. Without the gospel, you go around and you'll see the homeless people, you'll see the other people in the streets, and your initial reaction to them is that they're bums. They're terrible at life. They're lazy. They don't do these things. Actually, they're dangerous to your health. But with the gospel, you'll start to see them, and you'll see a homeless person on the street, as our team in New Orleans did, and you'll realize that they need food, that they're hungry, that they're hurting. And just like us, they have potential. They're just not realizing it. 
And the world has given up on them way too soon. And we as Christians, our heart melts and we say, no, we are not going to. In New Orleans, when we were out, we had a free night in the French Quarter. Yes, right next to Bourbon Street. And I told them to pray for an hour while walking around. And they prayed for an hour while walking around with no water, no money, nothing to do. And the next night, when we had a free night, we could do whatever we wanted to do. They chose to go back to the French Quarter, buy some Popeyes, because it's New Orleans after all, and then share a meal with the homeless they had seen the night before. And I walked around the city trying to be a paparazzi because I didn't want to give them away. But as I walked around, in this middle of the street, all the people were walking around, and you saw four Asian-American, Korean-American teenagers sitting around a homeless person sharing a meal and talking to them. And in the end, they prayed together while people were walking by the streets. That's a heart that is becoming a heart that God is transforming. And you cry because you say it shouldn't have to be this way. That's why that song sings, break our hearts for what breaks yours, doesn't it? Third reason that we should expect tears. Because it's, in my opinion, it's the only way to remain hopeful and have a steadfast joy in the midst of tears. I've had this conversation, one like this, most with my wife, but with others. And every single time I have this type of conversation, I'll tell you about it in a second, everyone is shocked and taken aback by it. Generally happens like this. Somebody comes to me and says, Pastor Pete, so-and-so, so this is happening, and there's tears, and they're crying, and they're hurting. I get all that. And then I ask, I have the gall, right? I'm a mean person. I go, hey, can you be honest with me for a second? While they're, like, crying and they're needing tissues, I go, are the tears that you're crying about the actual thing that is grieving you? And then every single time, instantaneously, like magic, the tears stop. They're pissed off now. They're like, excuse me? What? Like, you for real? Did you just ask me what I think you just asked me? And I say to them, mm -hmm. like, I'm like, you know, embracing myself. I just, 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 just want to be honest. Because in my opinion, seems that you're crying. Yes, because something terrible has happened. But you're also grieving about the fact that you're grieving. And then more like, a lot of times like, what in the world does that mean? Because if you lose someone or a tragedy breaks, the tragedy is difficult. Yes, we all understand. If you're rejected, if you lose something, tragedy happens, that sucks and it hurts. But we all ask, why is this happening? What did I do? I didn't deserve all this. And what ends up happening is that you start weeping about the fact that you're weeping. And almost you lose sight of the fact about the thing that you should be weeping about. And it's because we don't expect tears in this Christian life. And we want to say, God, why is this happening to me? And the truth of the matter is, it will come. But if you learn to expect the tears, knowing that God will lead you through them to the other side as the good shepherd, you will grieve about the thing you're supposed to be grieving, but in the midst of grieving, you'll always have hope because you know that the shepherd is leading you to the other side. See, to weep about the weeping is to say that there's no hope. My life isn't going to go away. This is the final destination, and I'm going to be stuck here forever. And that's just not true for the Christian. Now the good news. I told you it was coming. And the good news isn't just that God is going to lead you through. In this psalm, God gives us a strategy, a strategy to best help us survive and live through the death valleys. Because isn't that important? Yes, getting through the death valleys is really great. 
But I would hope that we would get through them well, no? Just getting through is not good enough, I hope, for you. You want to get through them well. In verse 5 and 6, the psalmist uses this farming analogy to describe what he is doing. And he says, those who sow their tears shall reap with joyful shouting. Now, maybe at first when you read this, a lot doesn't jump out to you. When I gave this to the praise team, they gave me, they kind of had this look on my, look, 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 uh, sorry. <laughs> praise team Wednesday, I read, we read the psalm together, and then I tell, and I do this weird thing, and I go, what do you think? I basically, like, grill them, even though they just looked at the psalm, like, 10 seconds before. And I'm expecting them to have, like, good answers about everything. And then this time it was, like, literally crickets, just silence, nothing. And then, of course, I mean, I blame them, like, y'all are not in a good mood today, are you? Which is not what it is. It's just, they're just confused. There's just nothing there, it seems like. When you first look, there's not a whole lot there. It's, but if you look a little deeper, there's actually something there. It's an odd analogy to equate plants, planting with tears, doesn't it? You know how farmers do, or maybe you don't, but let me tell you. Farmers, they need to go out and plant seed. Planting seed is hard work. You got to do the thing. You got to, you know, plow the land and you got to plant the seeds and do all this stuff, right? And that's hard. But they do it every year. Why? Because they hope and they know that if you plant well, then you're going to get the harvest. You're going to get the plants. And so while you may not like doing the work, right? Like doing the work isn't great, but you know that the end product is going to be great. So you're not crying while you're doing it. You're just maybe complaining. Maybe you're a little like irritated, maybe, but you're not crying. You're not sorrow. You're not sorrowful. But it says here that the farmer goes and reap or goes and plants his tears. For whatever reason, the farming, the planting aspect itself is tearful and it's terrible. This farmer goes to and fro, weeping, goes out weeping. And because he's weeping so much, interestingly, the farmer then goes and plants the tears and even waters the plants with more tears. Now, this is obviously a poetic kind of like an imagery symbolism thing going on. But ask yourself, what is actually going on? If you've met anybody who's going through stuff in their life, generally you want to give them some advice. Or if you're going through crap in your life, you want somebody to give you some advice, don't you? Help me. My life stinks. I need some help. And generally, what the world or people around you will tell you is one of two things I find. The religious people, regardless of whether you're Christian or not, the religious people will tell you, stuff your feelings. It will be okay. Or your glass may be half empty, but it's also half full. Find the silver lining, they'll say. It's not as bad as you think. People in so-and-so country are doing way worse than you, so have perspective. Christians will say, God is with you. Or God's going to do something amazing out of all this. It's greater than what you, can, what you can understand. So just, you know what, just soak it in. It'll be all right. Avoid the tears. Get back up. It'll be okay. There's light at the end of the tunnel, the religious people will say. The non-religious will say something different. They'll say, express yourself. Let the world know how much it stinks and how you feel. Don't stuff it in. Just let it out. That's the anti-frozen understanding, right? Put it out there for all to hear and see. Trust me, you'll feel better about yourself. Now, I'm not in any way claiming that both of these are completely wrong and there's nothing good to take out of that. I, I, I wouldn't say that. But I don't think either of these strategies are healthy just on its own. But this psalmist teaches us something just a little bit different that I think changes everything. And he says this, when you have tears and the tears are overrunning your life, then I got a strategy for you. It's very simple. Plant your tears. 
Imagine that your tears are like seeds. Don't just sit on them and hide them because you'll get nothing back in return. But don't just dump them into a big bag and just throw them everywhere and hope that something happens magically. No, plant your tears. Sow your tears so that your tears will end up being more than just mere tears. Plant them. Why? Because they'll become sheaves. They'll become the bundle of the harvest that you'll bring back with you in joy because your plants will produce joy. Did you hear that? If you plant your tears, your tears will produce joy. There's a verse in Psalm 30 that says, Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. We sing a song. It's called Trading, I'm Trading My Sorrows. We're actually going to sing it in a song uh, later. But the psalmist is saying you're not just merely trading your sorrow for joy. He's saying, no, plant the sorrows, and in the end, God will produce the joy that comes only from planting your sorrows. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-17 says this, and I love this verse. He says, therefore, do not lose heart, Paul says. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Why? For the light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. Did you hear that? Your tears, your sorrows, your grief, if you plant them, as you plant them, they themselves will achieve and produce a joy and a weight of glory that's far greater than any joy maybe that you've known. Which means that in this life, if you're to live it well, not only will you need joy of celebration, you'll need joy that comes from the harvest of planting your you don't know this second type of joy, your life will not go the way you hope and or expect. So then the last question of the day is, how do we do this? How do we do this? And the answer is simple. The reason why we go through the Psalms every summer is because it's, I think, a good thing to do. Life is crazy, and so there's really no, there's not a pattern. But more so than that, it's because the Psalm teaches us to do one thing, and that is to pray. So how do you do this? You pray your tears. And so I'm going to give you three strategies on how to pray your tears that I hope you would actually use and utilize all the time. The first is this. Be totally honest with God. Don't hide anything. Come just as you are. I don't know where we got this in the church, but somewhere along the line we were told and taught to be careful how you pray. It's kind of like your parents, right? You're angry at your parents because they did something terrible. You want to just yell at them and just, you know. But if you're smart, and I hope you're smart, you will learn that if you phrase your words correctly, you'll get a better return. And so we apply this to God, saying and thinking, our life is in shambles. I want to just cry and I want to just hurl and I want to just, just, just yell. But there's a little voice inside of you and someone tells you, hey, wait, 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 wait. be careful how you talk to God. Don't get him pissed off, because then he'll bring down his wrath upon you. And it makes sense in some ways. But does it really make sense? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 39. If you don't, it's okay. I'll read it to you. Psalm 39 is this interesting psalm about like the vapor of life and kind of these things. And all of a sudden, right at the end of the psalm, it's a psalm of David. And at the end of the psalm, he's doing this and he's crying out. And he's saying, God, this is this is, and this and this is. And the very last two verses, they go like this. Okay? 
David says, hear my prayer, O Yahweh, and give ear to my cry. You hear that in Psalms all the time, right? God, listen to my cries. Listen to my prayers. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. And then this verse, and it shocked me when I read it. Turn your gaze away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. It's David's way of saying, you make life really difficult for me. And so if you could, just do me a favor, turn your face away from me. I don't want to have anything to do with you right now. And if you do, I may just maybe get a little bit of peace so I can die peacefully. Now, if you read David's Psalms throughout, he laments a lot. His life is crazy. There's a lot of things going on. People chase him throughout the wilderness. He has to hide in caves and do all these sorts of things. And so he has good reason to lament. But most of the lament psalms, they go like this. In the beginning, you cry out and you say, oh, God, what is, going, what is happening? Hear my cries. Everyone's out after me. They're trying to kill me, yada, yada, yada. But at the end, you always end with joyful celebration. I know that God is good. I trust in his ways. The generations are all great, so on and so forth. But this one, for whatever reason, David is not going this route. And he says, God, I've had enough. I'm done. Leave me, please, because I can't handle it anymore. It's the very opposite of what we're taught to say, what he ought to say. It's theologically completely incorrect. There's no tact, there's no respect, there's nothing. It's just pure and utter like hate and vitriol from David. And it's very, very surprising. He's defeated. And he's saying, God, it's so bad right now. Just go. Just go. And maybe you've been in this situation, or maybe you saw it in the movies. Where it gets so bad and you just go, just, 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 just go. David is obviously feeling some sort of way so hurt that he cannot muster the strength or the courage or the mindset to say what he ought to say. A good Christian doesn't talk like this. Why? Because there's no hope in anything. The last thing you want to do with your life is throw away God, isn't it? Like you know that. Everybody knows that if you're a good Christian. But for whatever reason, he doesn't. It's almost like, David, have you lost your mind? I think you've actually gone off the deep end and you're done, bro. Seems like David has blown it. But what if he hasn't blown it? Because if he had blown it, and this was utterly wrong, then I thought to myself, why is this in the Bible? And as a nerdy Christian, and a person who knows things, it makes me question the things like the errancy of the Bible, which is a fancy way of saying like the Bible is not wrong about anything. It's like completely perfect. Then for me, I was like, why is this in here? Why is it teaching me to pray like this? It made me also think, apparently, I'm not the only one that sometimes has really lots of questions and want to just scream insults and curse at God. And then I was looking through this. I found this quote by a very famous theologian, very smart man named Derek Kidner, and this is what he says. It'll be on the screen. The prayer of this makes no more sense than Peter's depart from me prayer. If you look in Luke, Peter says, Jesus, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And then he says this, pay attention. The very presence of these types of prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. He knows how men and women speak. I added the women when they are desperate. God knows how men and women speak, how we speak when we are desperate. Are you hearing this? God understands your desperation. And let's be honest, when we're desperate, 
When we're hurting and we haven't put together the thoughts, we say things, perhaps incorrectly, perhaps without the right tone, perhaps without a thoughtful whatever, and we exaggerate a lot and we do a lot of things and our mind gets into it, our body gets into it, we scream things, we hurl things that we don't mean. But when it comes to God, it is safe to pray this way because he shows us that it's okay. Because God knows how we feel more than we know how we feel. If you look throughout scripture, there's more examples of things like this. Our deepest feelings, your deepest hurts, your deepest sorrows, your, 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 your snot-filled tears, as you will, need not be hidden or just dumped out. And even the feelings that you have not made sense of, the ones that perhaps will make you feel like a terrible person doing terrible things, they belong in prayer to God. They need to be planted in the very presence of our God so that they can produce joy. If at this point you're like, Pastor Pete, you've, you've lost it. You're done. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> if you don't believe me, hopefully Jesus will convince you. As you know, Jesus was planted on the cross, pun intended. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, while have you forsaken me? But even before the cross, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, God, if it's not, if it is, uh, uh, if you will, but not my will, but your will, but if you will, please, just please, just maybe, don't make me go through this cup, which is the cross. Don't make me do it. Your God understands your tears. Your shepherd understands your hurts. He hears you. He understands you. But he knows the words you're going to speak before you think them. And he's saying, my child, my son, my daughter, come with it. Pray to me in my grace and I will cover you. So be honest. Step one. Second, then, pray looking at the cross. Did you know that our faith, this Christian faith in Jesus, God the Father and the Holy Spirit, is the only faith in the world in which God himself comes into the world and the lives of the subjects, the humans, endures all the pains of the subject, the humans, and eventually at the end dies at the hand of those same sad and terrible humans. It's the only one you'll find. Which means, as again I've said, just as all of you have endured tragedy and seasons of craziness and hurt and pain tears, Jesus knows those things. And just as you maybe feel that there's times you cry out to God and want God to help you, and you look to the heavens and you say, God, why me? And you feel like God looks away, turns away his face and says, I don't know you. I'm not, I'm not listening to you right now. I don't got time for this. Jesus also knows what this feels like. But as Jesus tells us in this psalm and others, he says, don't ever, no matter what, turn your face from me. Come with your tears and everything and even if you're going to pray, God, go away, I don't want you, there's a good reason that you need to do this. I just mentioned to you that before the cross in the garden, Jesus was so stressed out, so pained, that he cries this cry of prayer, God, can you not, if you could, just please, maybe, just maybe, don't make me go through this. And he's so pained that he sweats blood. You know the story, right? You know the scene? 
psychologically and, and physiologically people tell you that when you do this, it's crazy. Like you're, 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 you're so stressed out. I've been stressed out in my life. A lot of you probably been stressed out, but I've never been so stressed out I've sweat blood. It's actually a thing that can happen. I hope you know. But he's so stressed out that he's doing this. And the reason why he's so stressed out, as I told you during Lent, is that he's so stressed out because for the first time in his life, in all of eternity, he knows that in mere moments and hours, his God will look at him. His father will say, and you'll cry out and say, God, please, don't turn your face from me. I need you. Don't do this to me. Please, 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 don't forsake me. And then his father will turn his face away and say, sorry. And he'll be separated. And that utterly broke him for a moment. Because he's never known anything quite like it. His father, his loving, perfect father and the Holy Spirit turned their face from him. Now some have asked, why would this break him? Doesn't Jesus know that he's going to resurrect? Yes, he does. But those three days, let me tell you, those are the most long and, excuse my French, hellacious three days of Jesus' life. And he did not want to go through. And I can understand him. Jesus knows your moments of desperation. But here's a difference. Maybe you think that you're looking at the heavens when you're going through things and God is looking away from you. But because God looked away at his own son, he's actually never looking away at you. You see, God looking away at your sin is actually real. He should, because God actually can't be a, with sin. He can't be among sin. It's why he had, to be, he had to banish Adam and Eve out of the garden. He can't do it. But because he looked at a sinless individual and he looked away and that sinless individual took all of your sins and put it on the cross and he made it final, then he does not have to look away from you no matter what you've done, no matter how terrible your life is, no matter what you are going through, because he has already done it to his son. And so actually the God that you know and the God you think might not be looking at you is never not looking at you because he's already did it to his son. He's never going to have to do it to you. And if you realize this, everything changes. All the guilt you felt about your actions, down the drain. All the shame of the things you've done, down the drain. Self-pity, gone. Your patience, it grows. All this because you know that Jesus went through the cross so that we don't have to. Because, and get this, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Jesus planted his tears so that it would produce the joy at the end. Why won't we? And lastly, the reason why you plant your tears or how you plant your tears is plant your tears knowing that there's glory at the end. Psalm 23 says that when you're journeying through life, following God, he takes you to green pastures, silent, still water. He's protecting you. He takes you through the death valleys and he leads you through. And at the end, he says, he prepares a table, a banqueting table for us in the presence of our enemies. This psalmist says, we, that he who goes to and fro weeping, planting their tears with their bag of tear seeds, will come back with joy and a harvest if you plant them. And this is because the psalmist and the Bible and people, Christians throughout the world, have known for a long time that all prayer leads to praise. 
Do you know this? Do we know this? As you know, the Psalms have 150 books in them, or 150 Psalms, a collection of songs, a collection of prayers, poems. They're divided into five books, not all equally 30 by 30, but they're divided into five books. And interestingly, at the last Psalm of each of these five books has a final prayer, a benediction of praise and joy. And then more interestingly, and get this, the last five Psalms, 146 through 150, are all celebration, joyful Psalms. Very deliberate organization of the Psalms in this way. I think it's because a psalmist knows something that we must realize. And thanks be to Eugene Peterson to help me with this in his book. But he says this. The crafted conclusion for the psalms, right? The way that the, the, way that the psalm book is organized this way, benediction of, psalm, benediction of joy at the end of each book, and then five psalms at the end of the entire thing that are all joyful. The crafted conclusion for the psalms tells us that our prayers are going to end in praise. But get this, but that it's also going to take a while. Don't rush it. It may take years, decades even, before certain prayers arrive at the hallelujah. Not every prayer is capped off with praise. In fact, most prayers, if the Psalter is a true guide, are not capped off with praise. But prayer and a praying life finally becomes praise. Prayer is always reaching towards praise and it will finally arrive there. If we, the people, persist in prayer, keep praying, if we keep laughing and cry and doubt and believe, struggle and dance, and then struggle again, then we will surely end up at Psalm 150, on our feet applauding, encore, encore, again, God, because there's joy being produced by the planting of the tears. And this truth, you and I must know there's glory at the end of all of this. Because if it isn't, your tears will consume you. Because deep inside, if we're honest, whenever we're going through the death valleys, you feel like this is the end. That you're not getting through this. You're not done. You're, you're, this is it. Last straw. But when you're assured that Jesus knows, he understands that it will indeed produce joy and there will be a glorious banquet at the end, then all things are different. You will be free to weep. Why? Because you're not afraid that the weeping is the end of you. You know it's just a part of the process. There's joy at the end because there's a king on a cross. And because this king is gracious and because this king knows our hearts and allows us to be desperate, ask yourself, am I joyful enough to cry? Because tears planted will produce joy and a joy that is life-changing. Friends, Fam, brothers and sisters, I invite you. Because if you're being honest, whether you're 10 or 35, like me, you might have some tears in your life that need planting. Will you take this time that we have before we begin and sing together and start the work of planting them? giving them up to God, expressing the things to God that you have not yet. Maybe you're afraid. Maybe you're hopeful that if you just sit on it, they'll go away. But in this place, will you begin to plant your tears? Because he who goes to and fro weeping 
with his bag of tear seed will will return with joyful shouting in his sheath. So do whatever you need to do for these next couple of minutes. I'm going to give you some time to plant your tears. Don't not plant your tears. It's so critical for you. And I hope you would think that you aren't someone that doesn't have tears, because all of us do, don't we? In this space, if you so choose, will you go and plant your tears? I ask you one thing. If you are not ready to plant your tears, then I ask you to step outside if you can't keep yourself quiet so that those in here can plant their tears. Because we will receive, and we will indeed arrive at the hallelujah at some point or another. And then when we're finished, then we'll sing together joyful shouts of praise and confidence and in trust that our God is good. So will you do that? Philip is going to hopefully play on the keys a little bit to give you some music, but will you take some time to plant your tears? Let me pray for us, and then we'll go into a time of planting. Lord, would you help us, oh God, to take all of our tears and to plant them to sow them, to trust you, to know that we can come just as we are, that we don't have to hide anything, and that you will indeed do the work that only you can do. So if we're afraid, if we're cautious, if we're doubtful that this is indeed what you want us to do, we pray that you would give us confidence. Holy Spirit, give us confidence to know that we can do this. And if we're in unbelief and we don't know what we're doing, then would you indeed tell us that this is indeed the truth, that it is indeed what is going to happen. That eventually, some way, some shape or form, that tears planted will always, some point or other, turn into praise. Would you help us to do this in this place? Work in us, oh God. Amen. So take the time that you need to plant your tears family, this is what we're here for. This is what worship is all about. So will you go and do so? And then when it's time, we will give you